Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Larson, executive editor of Power Magazine, and you're listening to the Power Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Andy Marsh. He's the CEO of Plug Power. So, Andy, thank you for coming on the program, and please tell a little bit about your company and, and what you guys do. Well, thanks for having me today, Aaron. And, you know, Plug's been in this fuel cell and hydrogen industry for 25 years now. And what we're kind of renowned for is that we create the first market for fuel cells. Um, not probably, Aaron, what folks think is the sexiest market of the world. We ended up putting fuel cells into forklift trucks for people like Walmart or Amazon. But during that journey, uh, because the customer insisted, we ended up thinking about how to build hydrogen fueling stations, how to deliver hydrogen how to build hydrogen plants. You know, today, when you look at the company, Plug has over 60,000 fuel cells in the field, working in mostly today in distribution centers, over 185 of those distribution centers, which are primarily uh, delivering food and retail goods, as well as helping manufacture cars. We also are building the first green hydrogen network across the United States, you know, planed out 500 tons by 2025, and building similar plants. We announced the big one in Europe last week at uh, the port of Antwerp, which will be using a plug electrolyzer technology. Again, another area where plug has a leadership position, uh, where we're looking to deploy, you know, this year over 100 50 megawatts of electrolyzers. So if you look at it from everything from generation of hydrogen using our electrolyzers to delivering that hydrogen using the, the trailers we've developed to the fueling stations, to the fuel cells themselves, and not just in material handling, but uh, we have a JV with Renault in France for putting commercial vehicles on the road as well as with SK in South Korea for building large-scale stationary products. So, you know, there's no company in the world that has as broad a portfolio as Plug has in this hydrogen and fuel cell space. Well, I think it's really remarkable to think that you've been doing it that long. You know, 25 years is a long time to be working on fuel cell development and and getting these out there into the field. Because a lot of people probably think this is a new phenomenon. You know, they have heard about hydrogen just within the past few years, really. It's coming more and more to light as people talk about decarbonization and talk about ways to store energy and and utilize uh, different forms of energy. So how do you feel about the the future? Are you optimistic about where this thing can, can go? Oh, Aaron, absolutely. I'm optimistic. And when I look at, uh, look at the world, I, you know, I grew up in the wireless industry starting in the uh, early eighties and, you know, the wireless industry in the early eighties, I could have never have imagined, you know, what it became that, uh, I'd be sitting with a computer in my pocket and can reach and talk to anyone instantaneously around the world. But this is actually much bigger. We're, uh, we're in the process of a major transformation in energy. 
And, you know, I think many people, people like Goldman and Bloomberg believe that, uh, you know, we're going to be helping reduce the carbon footprint of the world by 20% by using hydrogen. I think also, look, all these activities have a lot to do with job creation. You know, over the past uh, two and a half years, Plug has created over 2,300 jobs. Now we have 3,000 employees. And when I sit back and look at it, about 20% of our employees made the transition from the oil and gas fossil fuel industry to a clean energy. And finally, with everything going on in Ukraine, everybody's beginning to realize that it's so important for folks in the free world uh, to be able to uh, strive for energy independence. And I think hydrogen, the fact that, uh, you know, you can create green hydrogen uh, from green electricity that can be locally sourced really is unique and can be used in such a wide variety of applications, which I'm sure we'll talk about during this interview. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about green hydrogen and, and places where you see it really making a difference and, and where it might work and where it might not work. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, I, and uh, I want to step back and say, Aaron, I'm not a purist, but when I take a look at it, the best place for hydrogen today is going to be, and the fastest will be, substituting natural gas generated hydrogen with uh, hydrogen which comes from green sources. And that's everything from steel manufacturing to fertilizer usage. I mean, they're actually the easy apps and actually represent a carbon footprint, which is as big as the carbon footprint uh, that you see for mobility. And we see, uh, you know, you look at that, uh, that's the biggest opportunity uh, in the near term. But then you think about uh, mobility. If you're looking to electrify and you look at anything from, you know, an Amazon, you know, delivery van and larger, kind of that delivery delivery van space is kind of going to be a mix between hydrogen and batteries. Anything larger just because of space and weight uh, it's going to be fuel cells if you're electrified. I, you know, I love this. DHLs come out and they have a graph that shows if you have to go more than 150 miles, all they would be doing in a DHL delivery van is, deli- is moving batteries around. And that's not the business they're in. I think that technology, you know, we're looking to have, you know, 30% of a 250,000 vehicle market. Uh, for those kind of vehicles in Europe by 2030. I think that's a real good place. I think anything smaller mobility should probably be batteries. I think when you think about uh, areas like heating homes, I think heat heat pumps are probably the right answer for new, new construction. Natural gas substitution, I think, will be appropriate for... Uh, older construction and older homes. And, uh, you know, when you talk about the power grid, you know, we're doing some interesting work with SK uh, where, you, where we're using waste streams. But I think what you'll really see is that, um, you know, when you think about a 
renewable grid with wind and solar, you're going to need fuel cells and hydrogen, both from a storage point of view. Hydrogen storage is less than one cent for 33 kilowatt hours of energy uh, versus batteries, which are significantly higher. And the fact that uh, for long-term operations in a renewable network, fuel cells are really going to be your future peaker plants. You know, in the power industry, there's a lot of work being done to convert gas turbines to 100% hydrogen capabilities and, and things like that. But I think there are many other ways that we can utilize hydrogen, probably in a more beneficial way in the transportation sector and in the steel sector and some of these other tough to decarbonize industries. So I think uh, some of the work that you guys are doing is probably really well placed and, and warranted. You mentioned a little bit about France, I believe you mentioned, and, and other countries in Europe. Do you think Europe is moving more quickly on this decarbonization path, and or do you think America is going to be able to catch up and, and provide the technology that's needed around the world to help develop this hydrogen economy? I, I think one of the misnomers is that the U.S. has not been the leader. You know, there are more fuel cells deployed in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world. There's more hydrogen generated, especially liquid hydrogen, which is critical for this industry in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world. I just think uh, the U.S. is a little bit different from Europe. We don't run on uh, industrial policy. Uh, it's much more uh, driven by tax credits and you know, tax credits in the industry working together, both in fuel cells and batteries, have helped uh, help the U.S. move along. But also you have companies, you know, U.S. is much more of a market base and you have folks like Walmart and Amazon, which have incredibly uh, aggressive CO2 reduction goals. So I don't see the U.S. behind it all. And I see some of the policy discussions that are still going on in, going on in D.C., including a production tax credit for hydrogen, as well as an extension of the investment tax credit, are all going to be quite beneficial to this industry. That being said, I think, you know, we spent a lot of time in Europe and you know, Europe is uh, my new other home. Uh, we have with France, with uh, Renault. Uh, we're manufacturing commercial vehicles as we speak. We do our electrolyzing system design in Holland. We have a service center in Germany. And we have a JV for generating green hydrogen with Axiona in Spain. And I can't forget the announcement from last week where we're looking to build 35 tons of liquid hydrogen capacity at the port of Antwerp, which is, uh, after Houston, the second largest chemical cluster in the world. You talked a little bit about where you see batteries being effective and where you see fuel cells being effective in transportation. I'd like to kind of go back to that a little bit because we've heard car companies, you know, the, the Fords and the GMs and, of course, Teslas out there building all these battery-based uh, vehicles. 
But we don't hear a lot about fuel cell vehicles. Will we start to see them on the road soon in America, or, or what do you think is holding them back? So let me let me take a step back and say first, uh, there are you know nothing like electric vehicles, but there's about you know if you look to Asia, you see a great deal of focus on fuel cell electric vehicles. Toyota's deployed over seven thousand vehicles in California. I think if you look at uh, Korea, Hyundai's putting a thousand vehicles on the road per month. So you're beginning to see some of that going on. I personally believe that uh, fuel cell electric vehicles for passenger vehicles are a post-2030 type activity. I think that uh, the reason is I think that for most passenger vehicles, batteries will meet the needs of uh, consumers. And that uh, you know where fuel cells work best is in acid-intense applications where things like fast fueling, where you can fill with vehicles in three minutes like your car, long range, you know, where you can go 500 miles uh, without having to fill up. I think those areas, when you start thinking about maybe society moving more towards a sharing society for vehicles and much more emphasis on automatic guided vehicles, I think that'll be the right place for fuel cell passenger vehicles. I think over the next decade, where fuel cell vehicles will make the most sense is more in the commercial segment. You know, as I kind of mentioned in the earlier earlier part of this discussion, Aaron, where you're really looking to move goods and where weight matters, uh, where volume matters. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, if you get into a, a DHL truck making deliveries, there's a real limitations on the physical size and weight of batteries, which really don't, don't, do not make them appropriate, as well as challenges with bringing the grid to power fleet. And on top of that, uh, you know, if you have that type of asset, you want it on the road all the time. And then I think underneath all that is the hydrogen stations. If you can build the hydrogen stations at centralized locations, you know, it's much more cost effective than batteries for commercial vehicles because, uh, you know, you get past 15 vehicles, hydrogen fueling stations are lower cost than battery charging stations. That's where it works. One of the things that has me particularly optimistic about the future is the fact that there are so many smart people out there in the world that are working on new innovations and new technology. And I think eventually those things are going to come to market. And there are probably solutions that are being developed right now that we can't even imagine that will change the world of the future. You know, you mentioned telecom industry in the 80s. I lived through that as well, and I mean, we didn't even, we couldn't even picture what the future would look like today at that time. So what sort of innovations do you think are going to happen in the future that might make green hydrogen or some other form of energy particularly uh, useful? You, you know, Aaron, uh, our chairman here, George McNamee, wrote a paper back in 1978 about how wireless could drive uh, 
uh, all these apps we see today. So there are some folks that uh, were able to see it back then. I wasn't. Uh, but when I look at the technology, when I look at technology development, uh, a lot has to do with, uh, you know, I think the leading edge technologies, the leading edge applications often point you in the direction of uh, where you need to go in the future. You know, I think a lot of the work we're doing with putting, you know, aircraft with regional flight, where you have a couple deals we're working on, one with a startup called Universal Hydrogen, where we spent a lot of time on three items. How to make fuel cells and hydrogen lay way less, how to increase energy density, how to, uh, you know, use storage and putting liquid hydrogen on board. All those items, when you think about, you know, when you think about analogies to uh, the wireless industry, energy density is a lot like putting more radios on a single card. You know, weight has to do with how you can make smaller and smaller products. And how you do that, uh, you know, one example is that uh, so much work is being done on how do you reduce the level of precious metals? How do you uh, eliminate platinum? How do you eliminate iridium? How do you develop recycling programs? You know, the base platforms are here today. And, you know, you go back and look at wireless, the base platforms were there years ago. But changes that were made help you really drive down costs make products smaller, and have more capabilities than you have today. So there's a lot of people, you know, here at Plug and elsewhere, they're really looking at the, what I kind of see as kind of the uh, virtuous loop of weight, energy, density, reliability, efficiency, uh, so much tied to how you store, so much tied to how you use precious metals. All those items, it's, it's not as if the basic platforms aren't there today. It's how to enhance the basic engineering platforms that can really make it uh, more of a, uh, a global activity for a global offering. That's where I see, uh, I see so much of the work is really associated with great engineering versus uh, really aha technology. Because quite honestly, when I look at wireless, there hasn't been an aha technology for 35 years. It's just improvements in engineering that have been made along the way. Yeah, I guess that's that's true. You can make incremental steps every year or two, and, and before you know it, you've got yeah. something very innovative that, that hadn't been contemplated from the beginning. It's really Moore's Law, right, for memory. Sure. And how to reduce the size of integrated circuits. That's what the idea of this phone was there 40 years ago. How to do it just as technology and improved is really good engineering improved. That's really what made it possible. Sure. I know the infrastructure for the natural gas distribution system is often talked about as potentially converting eventually into a hydrogen infrastructure. And I know you can, even at present, start 
inserting hydrogen, I believe I've heard up to 20% hydrogen in some cases, into the natural gas pipelines without any detrimental effects. You know, this is just, it just mixes in with the methane and and you've got a, a little bit different gas, but it's still basically natural gas. Do you see big changes coming and do you think we will eventually see the natural gas distribution system become a hydrogen distribution system? I think it's, and let me, let me take a step back. I think hot for hydrogen to be readily available, it is important to be able to use pipelines. And, you know, I'll, I'll just give you an example why it's important. And it really has to do with the transportation costs, Aaron. To move hydrogen through pipelines, it's probably, you know, kilograms like 32 kilowatt hours of electricity. That probably will cost you three or four cents per kilogram. If you do in a liquid form, it's probably 20 cents. If you do it in gases form with trucks, it's probably 80 cents. So, you know, for this to be a cost, to be a really cost effective, pipelines are really important. Your 20% number is kind of a common industry number. I believe believe that's right. But, uh, you know, I think that this will be one of the events we talked about Europe before. What we're told is that the European pipelines are in a, a much better or much better capable of carrying hydrogen at scale. But that is the best way to move hydrogen. I think here in the States, you're going to see maybe overlay networks with hydrogen pipelines. But, you know, it's always, um, you know, the challenge of pipelines, as you know, is right away. But um, for this to be the technology that's able to help reduce the carbon footprint by 20 percent, we need pipelines. And. I think you're going to. You, I think you're going to see more and more work being done to see, you know, how far that twenty percent can go. I mean, SNAM, and I've heard people disagree with them, claim that a hundred percent of their pipelines in Europe they run large pipelines that go from Africa into Italy uh, can be because of the kind of metals they've used in their pipes that they can go 100% hydrogen. So to me, the answer is yes, and it's required for this to uh, to scale the way uh, many of us would like to see it scale. Mm-hmm. Today, most of the hydrogen that is available on the market is what they call gray hydrogen. It's hydrogen that's produced from natural gas, and there's a lot of carbon uh, associated with that production carbon dioxide release and and everybody's trying to get to that place of green hydrogen where it's all made from electrolyzers and renewable energy and there's no carbon release do you think at all about the colors and and their importance or is in your world is it just hydrogen is hydrogen and and we're just trying to make the best use of whatever we have available well i would say hydrogen's not hydrogen i think that um I think the colors are a good indication of the uh, CO2 intensity. And uh, I think that's probably uh, 
a general consensus that uh, more gray hydrogen, you know, quite honestly, is probably not fundable. That uh, you know, investors are not going to put money into more and more gray hydrogen production because of fear of that being a stranded asset. I think um, blue hydrogen. I think the challenge there is, um, you know, spend, I spend time looking at it. Uh, is the effectiveness of CO2 capture, and the numbers I see can vary, you know, everywhere from 30 percent. Uh, there's one plant that I know have reached 90 percent. So, you know, I I don't think, um, you know, you have that challenge with the ability to capture. And then you have the other challenge, which, you know, we look at it, uh, only about one third of the, you know, carbon capture storage projects that have, have that have ever been announced have actually been able to be implemented. So we really do think mostly that the solution for the future is green hydrogen. And look, there's three items that drive that. One is the cost of green electricity. And, you know, if you look at today in Europe, because of the cost of natural gas in Europe, boy, it's easy. I think if you look at something around $15 an MMBTU, which we think will be the standard project cost in Europe, we think somewhere between three to four cents a kilowatt hour, the feedstock has equal cost. When I look at the cost of electrolyzers, we've seen with fuel cells, which are very, uh, similar technology that costs have been going down about 25% per year uh, per every time you double the number of units in the field, very much like the uh, Moore's law for electrolyzers. And the third item is the cost of capital. As more and more projects are deployed, the cost of capital starts looking like the cost of solar. So, you know, we think that somewhere around 27, 28, that, um, yeah, I think that green hydrogen will be a far superior solution than blue because it'll be the same cost and a much smaller carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. We have what's called Hydrogen Next. We rolled that conference out last year, and we're going to be doing it again in October, October 3rd to the 6th in Denver, Colorado. And I think I'm going to submit to my uh, conference director that we should get you on the stage and and talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing because it's really fascinating and and innovative. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Andy. Is there any last words you'd like to leave us with? You know, Aaron, I I like to kind of remind your listeners that that all this is possible. We can meet our goals for reducing the carbon footprint. You know, I, I grew up in Philadelphia and you couldn't you could light the Delaware River on fire and people can fish there today because of steps people have taken along the way. And uh, to meet our goals for uh, keeping temperatures below 1.5 degrees C, technologies exist today, solar, wind, fuel cells, hydrogen, batteries that can make all that possible. Uh, I, I want to tell folks, be optimistic. And, you know, Plug is is the leader in the hydrogen fuel cell space and will continue to be. But the world's going to be okay. We just got to work at it every day. And we've worked at it for the past 25 years. 
and we're going to work at it for the next 25 years, and we're going to meet our goals around the world. All right. Well, I think you're doing great work. I'm excited to see what comes in the future, and thanks again for joining me on the podcast, Andy. Well, thanks for having me, Aaron.